Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. Don't worry, we're not going to be here long. Some of y'all are probably sick of Genesis in this series. Um, But we're going to do a super brief kind of overview, review where we've been, uh, where we're at, where we're going. Um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. And the whole series we're looking at is the idea of killing sin's roots. Okay, Trying to understand our sin at the deepest level and how do we cut it off, in some sense, almost before it starts. Okay, so Genesis chapter 2, look at verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for the food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, God originally made a world that was great for mankind. Okay, it was perfect. Uh, And we were meant to trust God, obey God, and enjoy God, all the blessings that He had given us. Now, notice the word in chapter 2, verse 9. I've got the New American Standard here where it says, to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight. And that Hebrew word there for pleasing is the exact same word that's used over in chapter 3. Go over to chapter 3 in verse 6 when it says, When the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate, and she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. That word for desirable to make one wise. Now here's the point. There's this word okay, that can mean pleasing. It can mean desirable. And it's a neutral word. It's not necessarily a good word or a bad word. It's the, it's the word for desire. Something you want, something you like. You have to understand it based on the context. Now in Genesis 2, 9, it, it's a good word. It was good. God made something that was pleasing. It was desirable to them. God likes to give good gifts to his children. But then by chapter 3, it had turned and was being used in a way to tempt them. Okay, remember what we've, again, very brief overview. Satan comes into the garden, and he essentially starts by lying about God, making insinuations. God's not good. God's not trustworthy. He's not going to give you the best stuff. If you want the best stuff, you're going to have to rise up, and you're going to have to take it because something's lacking in you. There's something inadequate in you. He's lying to us. And so where we're supposed to be in a place of trust, humility, submission, he's inviting us to a place of doubt and therefore a place of pride. And what does it lead to? It leads to coveting. Okay, That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Because that same word, it can be translated pleasing or desirable. If you go over to Exodus chapter 20, okay, which we won't do because I think we're all familiar with this passage, where the Ten Commandments are first given, the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet, is the exact same word. So, again, in and of itself, in the Hebrew, and you, you take it into the New Testament in Greek, it's oftentimes translated as lust. Flip over to Luke chapter 4, and while you're turning there, i just make a couple of comments. Again, um, there's there's nothing wrong with having desire. There's nothing wrong with liking things, seeing things in the world that are pleasing. There's nothing wrong with Adam and Eve saying, this tree looks beautiful. This fruit looks tasty. I'd like to have some of this fruit. But when it's a specific fruit that God said you can't have that fruit, that's when the desire, which was a good desire, can turn into a sinful desire, and then we call it coveting. Okay, So we're going to use this word coveting or lust in general in a negative way today because that's primarily the way the New Testament uses it. And a lot of times we hear the word lust, we think only about sexual lust, but it really broadly means the same thing. Anytime you have a desire that turns into a demand, I have to have this thing to be happy. That's when you get into trouble. 
Okay? John Piper has this great quote where he says, never desire anything in a way to undermine your happiness in God. Okay? If you say, I want this thing so bad, and if I can't have it, then I really can't be content in God. That's a problem. That's sin. That's coveting. Imagine you came home for dinner one night, okay, and you're having chicken for dinner, and there's all this chicken on the plate, and you spy the one biggest piece of chicken, and you're really hungry, and you're like, I want that biggest piece of chicken. But then when you sit down, you say the blessing, people start getting it, somebody grabs the biggest piece of chicken first. And if you say, oh, well, not a big deal. I wanted it, but I'll just get two smaller pieces. That's fine. That's just you had a desire. You didn't get what you want. No big deal. No sin involved, right? But if somebody, maybe one of your kids, grabs the biggest piece of chicken first and you start to pout and complain and get angry, whether you do it out loud or whether you just do it in your head, some of us, that's the more respectful way we do it, right? I don't say anything out loud. I just kind of pout internally, get angry. Dad, come I paid for that chicken. I'm paying for this kid to go to college and he's going to come home and get the biggest piece of chicken. Now you're in sin. You're coveting. Your, your contentment has been ruined. Okay? I've got several quotes here. Okay? Ignatius of Loyola said this, Sin is ultimately an unwillingness to trust that what God wants from me is only my deepest happiness. When you quit believing that God has perfect plans for me to bless me in His time and His way, you start to doubt that you'll start to look around and say, then I've got to satisfy myself somewhere else. And that's where coveting is born. Okay. Kistemacher said this, When we discard checks and balances, desires get out of hand and, so to speak, become pregnant. Desire is able to conceive when man's will no longer objects but yields. So when you give into it, right? Uh, there's a guy I'm going to quote a lot today. He's this old Puritan named Thomas Manton who has a great commentary on James. And one of the things he said is, suggestion can do nothing without lust. And here's what it means. If Satan puts a tempting thought in your brain, but you don't give into it for a second, you object to it, well, you haven't sinned. The thought went through your mind, but you didn't give into it. You didn't sin. But if you yield, if you start to give into it, that's when you're in trouble. Does that make sense? Let me give another practical example. Let's say that you're really uh, struggling with money. Hey, it's tax season, say, and you're looking at how much you owe and things are tight and you got extra bills and the car broke and everything's going wrong. You're like, man, money is really tight. So you get out every policy that you have and all your investments and you're trying to figure out how am I going to make this thing work. And as you're looking at everything, you realize I have a insurance policy on my wife and the thought goes through your mind. Maybe you've been watching too many episodes of Dateline or 48 Hours. You know, I could kill my wife. I could get the money. But then you think, no, I, that's ridiculous. Where did that thought even come from? I love my wife. I don't care if it's a million-dollar policy, I, right? You haven't sinned. But if the thought goes through your mind, I do know a way that I could pay less taxes. It would technically be sinful, but, you know, I really hate the government. The government wastes a lot of money, and you, it starts to please you in your heart. You're like, a way that I can get money and screw the government over? That sounds really attractive, right? And you never do it, but you've sinned. Because it's, it found some landing ground in your heart. Does that make sense? Okay. Listen to this quote by John Calvin. That the corrupt thoughts which arise spontaneously and so also vanish before they affect the mind, they do not come into account before God. You hear what he's saying? A thought comes in your mind spontaneously, but then you get rid of it. It doesn't affect you at all. There's no sin there. Yet, although we do not actually acquiesce in the evil desire, still, if it affects us pleasantly, it is sufficient to render us guilty. If you start thinking about something, and you start enjoying just thinking about it, even though you're like, I know I'm not going to actually do it, but it is kind of fun to think about. 
you're already in sin. Right? I mean, this is just Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just lust. I mean, it's not just adultery. It's if you commit lust. It's not just murder. It's if you in your heart wish that you could kill that person that just cut you off in traffic. Right? You've already gone there. Now, um, let's, we're going to go to James, but I want us to look very, very briefly at Luke chapter 4, which is the same account of what we looked at last week in Matthew chapter 4, with Jesus being tempted. And I want you to think about, again, the verse that we just read, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. This is all by way of introduction, okay? And we're about to dive in. All right, I know it's a lot, but I'm trying to just make sure we're all on the same page. It said that Eve, and Adam was there with her, looking at this forbidden fruit, it looked like it was going to taste good. And then it just looked beautiful in and of itself. It's like, man, that is a beautiful piece of fruit I'd love to have sitting on the kitchen table, so to speak. And also, it's going to make me wise. It's going to make me wiser than I already am. Wise like God, at least that's what she thought. Coveting tends to have three different rivers. Okay, and we're going to see the same three rivers come out in Jesus' temptation. And there's a very famous verse, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, and it's talking about the sinful world culture, okay? the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Those tend to be the three rivers of coveting that we can fall into. And so look at how they play out in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. So Luke chapter 4, start with verse 3. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Okay, the first one, the lust of the flesh, our appetites. I mean, what was the specific surface-level temptation? Food. But we'll come back to that in just a second. And then skip down, verse 6. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory. And he's showing him all the world. For it has been handed over to me, and I can give it to whomever I wish. What's the temptation there? It's about fortune. You can have all of this. I'll give you the whole world. You'll have everything. And then skip down to verse 9. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And probably what Satan was trying to appeal to here is, nobody knows you right now. You need some fame. You need some followers. Let's go do this big, extravagant miracle, and all of a sudden, you'll be the most famous man in town. Now, surface level, the temptation. It was food. It was um, fortune. It was followers or fame. But the deeper temptation, what was it appealing to in Jesus' heart? A desire for satisfaction. A desire for security and a desire okay, for significance. And listen, it's not wrong to want a sense of satisfaction. Again, God made a world that has food that tastes good. It's not wrong to want a sense of security. God made a world that felt safe to live in for Adam and Eve. It's not wrong to want a sense of significance and importance in life. God made a world where he said, hey, Adam and Eve, you're like my vice regents that are going to run the universe for me. And you're made in my image. What's wrong is when we start to demand those things in a way that God hasn't allowed us to get them. Does that make sense? That, that's the heart of coveting. That's the heart of lust. It's when it becomes like this controlling craving. I have to have it. It shifts from just being a desire to a demand. This desperate desire that says, I have to have you now. So let's go at James chapter 4, and we want to look at how to try to fight this. James chapter 4. And we're going to have just three points in James today. Okay? James chapter 4. 
Know yourself, submit yourself, and humble yourself. And I'll explain more about what I mean as we get there. So, James chapter 4, let's start in verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, one danger in this whole lesson that we've been doing on the idea of understanding sin's roots, where does it start, how does it explode in our life, so to speak, is that we could easily become experts in how other people sin. Right? I know what makes my wife sin. I can write a book on it. I know what makes the liberals sin, you know, see it every day, tell you all about it. And, and listen, there's a place for that. It's helpful to understand other people's sins. What's much more helpful is understand how I sin. And that's where we tend often to be the most blind. So if you're like, you know, coveting, you just mentioned these different examples, I don't really know where I struggle with coveting. I'll give you two ways that you can figure it out. First, ask your spouse or your best friend. I bet they'll have a good idea, okay? Ask the person that knows you best. But be careful. Don't, probably don't do it on date night. It might ruin it, okay? <laughs> but here's the second way based out of this text. Where do you tend to get into the most arguments? Where do you tend to get into the most quarrels with other people? Now, again, depending on your personality, the type of quarrels that you might get into might look different. If you tend to have more of an extroverted, type A, driven type personality, you probably are literally getting into verbal arguing matches with people at times, whether in your family or at work or wherever it may be, maybe random strangers on the highway or in the store. Dig down under what you tend to argue about the most, and typically you'll find what you covet the most, what you lust after the most. If you have more of an introverted, quiet Personality. You might not be getting into any hot war, verbal arguments with people. But you're probably having cold wars in your mind, right? The internal battles. Okay, we all, we all do this. Even if you never say anything, well, I'll tell you what I'd like to say to him. i tell you if I could give her a piece of my mind. You know, you ever do that? You're having a conversation with yourself about what you'd like to say to your boss. I'm not just going to say it because I get fired. But here's what I'd like to say. Okay, what do you quarrel about? That's where your lust is. That's where your coveting is. And again, this Puritan named Thomas Manton, he said this, noonday devils are the most dangerous. And here's what he means. The respectable sins, the ones that don't look that bad, the the ones that when you compare them to what other people are doing scandalously in the middle of the night, you're like, I look pretty good compared to all those people. Don't compare yourself to other people. Compare yourself to Christ and let that humble you. Okay? Now, um, where do you quarrel? That's how you know yourself. That's how you're honest. Look at what he says in verse 2. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. He probably doesn't literally mean you're out there killing people. Again, this was a letter that he wrote to Jews that had professed to become Christians, okay, in this mega church that was in Jerusalem at that time. He was the head pastor when he's writing this letter. So he's probably talking about the way Jesus talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount. You murder people with your words. You slander. You gossip. You accuse. You don't give them the benefit of the doubt. That's a sign. Something's going on under there. Okay? Listen, so much of our coveting 
Do you remember, do you remember the way the Tenth Commandment is worded? You shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's ox. Okay? Most of the time, our coveting doesn't happen in a vacuum, does it? It's like I look over there and I'm like, why can't I have a car like that? Why can't I have a lake house? All my friends are at the lake house for 4th of July. I'm just stuck here in Birmingham in the heat. Why can't I have a lake house? We tend to covet what the other person has. Kind of a side note, okay? This is one of the reasons that social media is so detrimental to our society and to people in general, but especially young people. Now listen, social media is not the devil. There's plenty of great things you can do on social media, okay? Look at pictures of your kids and all that kind of stuff, right? I'm just telling you, it, it puts gasoline on the fire of coveting and envy and jealousy. and Because most people don't take pictures of what they look like at their worst, right? You know, I woke up today and I look terrible. I look like, you know, one of these mug shots that you see of the guy that got caught drunk driving. I think I'll take a picture of myself, put it on social. Nobody does that. They take the picture right after they came out of the hair salon. They look perfect, and then they do all the lighting and everything, and then people look and say, why can't I look like that? Again, I'm not trying to beat up on social media. I'm just saying know your heart. Okay, now, James is going to give us some very practical advice. Keep going there. You're envious, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. James is saying, listen, some of the stuff you want, listen, so many times, guys, when we're coveting, the deepest desire of our heart is for a good thing. We're just trying to get it in a sinful way. Okay? What's the key to doing that? So much of it is prayer. But here's the problem. Why don't we pray about those things the way we ought to? Because true prayer, biblical prayer, really involves a lot of submission, a lot of trust, and a lot of patience. And we don't really like those three things that much. Right? I mean, the, the best prayer in the Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ in the garden, not my will but thine. Here's what I want. I'm going to be very honest about my desires. You should do that in prayer. But even though you don't have to always say the words, there should always be the hard attitude. Lord, here's what I really want. Here's what I really think is best for me. But I realize I'm not an expert on the universe, and you are. And so if you choose something different from me, I submit. I trust you no matter what, even if it kills me. Are we praying that way? That's a protection against coveting. A lot of times we don't pay that. You know, again, James is a good author. He anticipates the argument that he might get, the pushback he might get from the people receiving the letter. Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Okay, and the word there for spend is the same word that it used when it talks about the prodigal son in Luke and he squandered all of his father's wealth. It's a squandering. Because he knew they would probably say, no, no, I've been praying about this. I'm praying about this all the time. I'm still not getting it. And James is saying, well, God knows your heart. You're not praying with the right motives. Now listen, again, technically there's two ways we can covet. One way is if you want something that's forbidden for you, right? I want to have his wife. You can't. It's forbidden. Stop wanting it. It's sin. Now it's different if, let's say, you have a single guy that says, I want to be married one day. I want to have a wife. That's a great desire. But when you say, I want to have a wife right now. Now you're in sin, you're coveting, you're demanding. So a lot of times, and listen, I think this is where Christians tend to struggle with coveting the most. It's not that we want a bad thing. It's that we want a good thing. But we say, I have to have it now. I have to have it like old Burger King commercials, my way right away. 
There's a lack of trust. There's a lack of submission. Okay, so what do we do when we, when we know ourselves? We start to understand our coveting. Then you have to submit yourself. Okay, so let's look at the next few verses. Verse 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, a couple things interesting here. Number one, okay, the word world can be used different ways in the Bible. But right here, the way it means is the sinful world culture ruled by Satan. If you're trying to be a friend of that, some of those people out there on social media, they look like they're having a lot of fun doing some bad stuff. I'd like to have just a little bit of that. I'd like to just dip my pinky toe into the pool of sin and get a little bit of the pleasure and get out before I get any of the consequences and it doesn't look that bad and I certainly won't look as bad as they do. Don't be a friend with the world. It doesn't work. It's like trying to have two spouses. It's going to end badly. Okay? I mean, go read all the Old Testament stories of all the people that tried it and it never went well. Right? They never lived happily ever after. It's a bad plan. And it's interesting, you know, I've got the New American Standard here who, who tends to be the most literal in the translation. A lot of more modern-day translations will translate this verse and say, you adulterers and you adulteresses. Because they don't really understand what verse 4 is trying to do. What verse 4 is trying to do is saying, all of you, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be married to God, who's the most perfect and loving husband of all time. And when you start getting attracted to sin... It's like committing spiritual adultery against your perfect loving husband. And you got to see it that way. Guys, one of the reasons that we all, and I know myself, we tend to give ourselves too much of a pass on our sin, the small sins, the lust of the heart, the coveting of the mind, is we tend to think of it as primarily breaking a rule, which it is. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. And when you just think of it as breaking the rule, it's like, well, it's the smallest rule out there. i got to break one of them, right? So if I'm going to break a rule, I'll just break some of the rules about stuff I just do in my brain and I just do in my heart, but I never do it externally, so it's not that big of a deal. That's the wrong way to think about it. you got to think about it like breaking a love relationship, Sinning against the lover of your soul. And he has x-ray vision, so to speak. So he knows what's going on in your heart and your mind. He knows where your feelings and affections are going. And he's grieved. He takes it personal. And you need to repent. I need to repent. Okay? Verse 5. Probably the hardest verse to translate in all of James. Okay? And I'll say why in just a minute. Or do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. It can be translated two different ways. It can have this idea of God is a jealous lover and he longs for you. He's jealous for you. And that would be true. That would be biblical. Or it could be translated to say, no, our spirit within us is jealously longing for sinful things in the world. And that would be true too. And the commentators are split, in my experience, about 50% down the middle. What exactly does it mean? And I'm not enough of an expert in Greek to argue with them, so... We're just not even going to say much about it. Both are true, okay? God jealously longs for us. We tend to jealously long for sin. We need to repent. Let's just keep going to verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Just pause here. Because if you're really thinking about this and you're really being honest with yourself, there's probably at least one sin in our life. And again, externally it may not look that bad. But internally it may look really bad. And at times we may feel like, I feel, I hate to use this word, but almost addicted to this sin. 
addicted to these thought patterns, stuck in them. I feel stuck. I feel like I can't get out. I feel like I've been doing stuff. I mean, I come to church. I come to Sunday school. I read my Bible. I go to the Bible. So I do all this. And I feel like I've made very little progress. The next verse says, there's a greater grace. Literally, there's a mega grace. There's more grace. You're already in Christ. You've already got tons of grace. But he'll give you extra grace, more grace to fight this sin, to break free from this sin. More power, more enabling. How does he do it? He gives it to the humble. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I remember hearing somebody teach on this verse years ago. And part of what they said is they said, imagine that you were playing football. And I played football in high school, and I was on the offensive line. And part of what you did, the very first play of uh, a football game, if you were on the offensive line, is you went and you got down in your three-point stance, and you looked across to see, who is it that I'm going to be blocking all night? And you hoped it was like the really small kid that really didn't even like football and his mom just made him play or something. You're like, I'm just going to crush this guy all night. It's going to be beautiful. What you hoped it was not is the big, gigantic, huge guy that already had a scholarship to go to college. right? And he's already shaving because you're like, he's going to crush me. Hey, now, I heard somebody teach you on this verse. He said, imagine if you went and got down in your three-point stance and you looked across the line to see who was going to be opposing you that you had to block, and it was God. Just give up. It's not going to go well for you. But that's the sense of this verse. It really is like God has dressed himself in his battle array and he's going to attack people that are arrogant. It's not a good place to be. But if you get humble, he'll open his hands of mercy and he'll just pour out grace. Okay. Um, my wife and I were talking about a woman yesterday that we knew. And... Uh, her husband used to be on staff with the church. They used to be very involved in the ministry. She was super involved. And they're both now in a very hard, bad place. And, 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 one, and one part of it is they're just totally uninvolved in church now. Don't go at all. Been years. And my wife was making comments. She's like, you know, this woman was one of the most gifted women I've ever known in my life. I'm shocked that she's kind of ended up in the place. And it was not I don't think we were gossiping. It was more just kind of like from a place of compassion and shock. Like, I can't believe she's ended up where she is now in life. It's painful for me. And I said, well, sometimes what happens is you are so gifted, it goes to your head. It becomes pride. You think you're above the rules. You can get away with some stuff. You don't have to keep the rules that other people keep. And my wife said she knew this woman pretty well. She said, you know, I, I never experienced her that way. I think what happened is she got really hurt by some people in the church, and now she's just trying to protect herself. And I know enough of the story to say, I think all that's true. I think all that's true. But that doesn't mean there isn't any pride involved. Because the way that she has chosen to protect herself, which is a normal right desire, right? I want to be secure. I want to be protected. Is to break God's, some of God's rules, which the Bible is very clear about how we need the fellowship of other believers in the church. And there's an arrogance, it's very subtle, to think, I know better than God knows. I can't be involved in church anymore because I might get hurt. There's a danger, like, even in the church, of this kind of arrogance that comes into our hearts, guys. So, look at verse 7. Verse 7 is a powerful verse. It's a great promise. It can change our lives if we really believe it. And it's, so, it's short and easy. It's a great one to memorize. Okay, Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, a couple of thoughts here. Why even bring in the devil into all this? Because as we've been saying since week two, Satan is behind all this. 
our battle with sin is not just with indwelling sin, although it is that. It's not just with the sinful world culture, although it is that. There's a third enemy, Satan. And he's operating, and he's pursuing, and he's attacking, and he has no mercy, and he doesn't take naps, and he never gives up. But here's a promise, guys. If we will submit ourselves to God and obey Him, if we will continue to resist the devil, just like He did to Jesus in the wilderness, eventually He will flee. He'll run away. No, He may come back. But at least there'll be a respite. Obedience to God, most of the time, it's not complicated, but it is hard. And there's a difference. You understand what I mean by that? If I said, you know what? I want you to figure out how to drill a tunnel that cars can drive through all the way from Florida to Cuba. You'd say, oh my goodness, I don't know if that's possible. I'm not an engineer. I, I just, that, that, that's going to be incredibly complicated. And even if we figure it out, it'll be incredibly difficult. I said, okay, forget that. No tunnel. I just want you to swim from Florida to Cuba. Listen, that's not complicated. That's real simple. You know how to swim, right? Real simple. Just keep kicking and stroking and pulling. But it's hard. Because you'll probably drown before you get there get eaten by a shark, right? And listen, that's a great picture in some sense of what it's like to obey God. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's really not complicated, but it's incredibly hard because of Satan, because of indwelling sin. But if we will just persevere in doing the basics we know to do in the long run, there will be a breakthrough. There will be friend. There will be him fleeing from us. Okay, so third point, humble yourself. We're already really talking about this. But draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Again, do everything basic that you know to do. Read the Bible, pray, go to church, be in fellowship, confess your sins. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Where you have been in sin, repent, grieve over it. Again, don't think about it as just breaking the law. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. It's breaking the heart of your husband, the husband of your soul. Verse 9, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Whatever short-term pleasure that you and I are getting out of sin, we've got to learn to see it for what it really is and the painful consequences that come on the back end and repent and hopefully start to catch ourselves before we even get into it. And then verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Okay. Thomas Manton again, he said, A sense of weakness should not, be a discour- a, should not be a discouragement, but an advantage. Just think about that. Again, don't worry. I'm not going to ask you to share. But I want you to think about the area of life you tend to sin the most. Where you tend to covet the most. Repeatedly. And you're like, part of the problem is I've been dealing with the same sin for 20 plus years. I've made some progress, but not near as much progress as I want to. You know, Reverend Barker used to say, I'm not who I used to be, but I'm sure not who I ought to be. I'm somewhere in between. You feel weak. You feel overwhelmed. And what Thomas Manton is saying to us is, that shouldn't discourage you. It should actually feel like an advantage. Well, that seems contradictory. Why? All God's aim is to bring you upon your knees and to take power out of the hands of His mercy. It's, it's, here's a mental picture. It's like God is holding mercy for you but he's holding it down low. And if you don't get on your knees in a place of humility, you can't have it. And God is using the circumstances of life to humble us, to bring us before him, to have his mercy and to be blessed. Now, practically, okay, let's try to do some application here. 
Any place that you know you're in sin, by God's grace, repent. Any place you say, I'm not in sin yet, but I'm certainly tempted to, do everything you can to fight it. Okay, so, application. Know yourself and lower yourself. Okay, know yourself, lower yourself, you could say. Submit yourself, humble yourself. The first thing, as we've already been saying, spend the time and energy. Have some conversations, even if they're awkward conversations, to figure out, to become an expert on your own sin. Listen to what John MacArthur says, okay? The individual nature of lust. It is different for each person as a result of inherited tendencies, environment, upbringing, and personal choices. There's multiple things in our life that make the unique way that we struggle with lust and coveting different from the person that may, in a lot of ways, look very similar to us. I've got a friend, okay? His major struggle right now seems to be alcohol. He's in a hard job. He's in a hard marriage. He's in a hard parenting situation. And so he goes to his hard job. He comes home, and he basically says, before I even get in the door, it's like, I'm already exhausted, and I know what's going to happen. I'm going to come in, and my wife is going to start being mad at me about something or complaining and hand me a kid and ask me to help, ask me to change the diet. He's like, so I just already know it's going to be hard. He said, so I just go home, and I just have a plan. I'm going to drink enough beers till I get a buzz. And he said, I actually feel like I'm a better husband then. No, obviously, I think that's stupid. <laughs> but I can see how it gets there, right? I remember what it was like to have a bunch of little kids at the house. It's like you have two full-time jobs. You come home, you take off your one hat from one job, and you just put on the next one. Full-time dad. It's not always fun. It's not always easy. And what's he want? He just wants some escape. He wants some satisfaction. He wants some joy. So he just comes in. Now, he knows himself. You've got to know the way that you struggle. Okay? We say, I'm going to struggle that way. Know how you struggle. And then you try to take those thoughts captive. I mean, part of what I've tried to say to him is, listen, you ought to find a parking lot somewhere between your office and your house and pull over and spend 5, 10, 50, I don't know what it is, and pray and read the Bible. And in a sense, do this. Make a 24-hour vow. Here's something that's helped me in my own struggle with sin. Okay? Because, it, again, I'm not going to ask you to share. Whatever your personal struggle is, if just right now you had to say, I promise Jesus... Between now and when I turn 89 years old, I'll never do it again. Let's just be honest. How much faith do you have to believe that you're actually going to keep that promise? I don't know about you, but not much for me. But what if it was just this? Jesus, for the next 24 hours, by your grace, I'm going to be faithful. It's like, that sounds pretty realistic. I think I can do that. I mean, I've done it before. There's hope. And then guess what? You wake up tomorrow morning and you just pray the same prayer. Make a 24-hour vow. One of the things that I learned years ago in my life when I was traveling a lot, staying in hotels a lot, is there would oftentimes be temptation to watch stuff on that TV I wasn't supposed to watch. And so, guys, this has helped me immensely. Just confess the temptation. Don't wait till you get into some hotel room by yourself late at night and you're bored and you're flipping channels. Before I'd even go on the trip, I'd just tell the guys in my accountability group, I'm going to be out of town for three nights, be in a hotel, pray for me, call me, text me, ask me. That, that made about a 98% difference in the temptation. You understand? It's like, number one, I've already said it out loud. Bringing sin into the light, that helps. Now i got guys praying for me, and a lot of times they're calling me, texting me, and they're going to ask me next week. It almost totally killed the temptation. Just couldn't get off the ground. And guys, that's what I'm after for us. Trace it down to the deepest root. Catch it before it even starts and kill it at the heart level. Now, the second part of this, lower yourself. 
Lower yourself. Humble yourself. Okay? Here's Thomas Mann again. Okay? Cry out like a virgin. And, and he's going back and he's referencing in the Old Testament law, if a man accosted a young woman when she was alone in the forest and was going to take advantage of her, and she didn't say anything, she was guilty. But if she cried out, she screamed, help, 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 the guy was guilty, but she wasn't. <clears throat> he's using that language to say, when you feel the temptation coming, cry out, scream out. And it's a sign that sin has not gained your consent but has committed a rape upon your soul. A Christian's life ought to be spent in watching lust. And what he means is, you're always on the hunt. You're on the prowl. I know Satan's out there trying to tempt me, trying to attack me, and so I'm aware. I'm prepared. My guard is up. My guard is not down. And as soon as I sense it, I'm going to start praying. I'm going to do whatever I can to fight it. Let me give you another example. Uh, There's a, a married couple that, again, having a really hard time. And there was a marriage conference in town just this last week, and I invited him to come. And the husband said, I don't know if I can get off work to come to the whole conference. And I don't know if that was true or he just didn't want to come, right? But I said, I hope you all come. Worked it out for you all to come. Hope, think it will really help. Please come. And then I was talking to the wife. She said, well, I don't even think he's going to come. What should I do? I said, well, come anyway. You come without him. And just how do you think you might respond to the situation? She's like, I'm not going to do that. I mean, understandably so, right? I mean, who wants to be the woman all by herself at the marriage conference? I mean, that's just like bringing a sign. Hey, I'm in a really bad place. I'm struggling. But I know this woman a little bit. I was able to just say, hey, you want to save your marriage? You want to save your reputation? I'm not sure you can save both. And I'll tell you which one's a lot more important. We've got to get humble to a point of desperation where we're not always trying to put our best foot forward. And we can be honest about the temptations that come upon our soul that's the way that you really fight. Okay. Now, what about just a normal life? How do you go through normal life, have normal desires, good desires for good things that God has put in the world, and yet don't let them turn into a covet, into a lust? You understand the question that I'm, I'm posing for us here? So here's an illustration that's helped me. Maybe it won't help anybody, but just see. Let's just go there together for a second. Okay. I want you to imagine, for the sake of the purpose of this uh, illustration that your grandmother is literally the best cook in the world. Studied in all the greatest, you know, whatever, culinary schools in Paris or whatever. She's the greatest cook in the world, but she is a little slow. Takes her like all day to cook the feast. And you're having a big family reunion, and you do this every year. And so here's the way it works for the family reunion. Everybody comes into the family reunion, and they bring like some appetizers, because you know, man, we're going to be waiting all day on Grandma's feast while she's in there cooking. But it is going to be the best feast of your life. So, imagine, you get to the family reunion, there's all these different appetizers, you can go around and try the different appetizers. But the whole time you're trying the appetizers, there's this smell coming in from the kitchen. It's grandmother is cooking the feast. And and the smell is so deep, and it's so rich, and it's so good, it's almost like you can already start to taste it and enjoy it. I mean, you're not actually eating it yet, but you might as well be, it's so good. Think about how that's going to affect the way that you interact with these appetizers. If you get one and it's pretty good, you're like, that's pretty good, but I'm not going to eat too much. Why? Because I'm saving room for the feast. If you get another one, you're like, man, that one was great. I might have a second one of those, but I'm not going to eat too much. I'm not going to fall in love with this because I'm waiting for the feast. And then imagine you eat one that's kind of bad, and you're like, man, this one tastes terrible. Who cares? I just throw it in the trash. I'm not consumed with this. I'm not consumed with the appetizers because I am thinking about the feast that is to come. Does that make sense? 
Christ is in heaven. You remember John chapter 14, we said, I go to prepare a place for you. If we're in Christ, He is preparing this perfect feast for us. We're in heaven, it will be all bliss, all joy, all enjoyment, all the time. No pain, no suffering, no sickness, no sadness. And to the degree that we really, really believe that, so that we can almost start to taste it now with our spiritual taste buds, it frees us from being consumed with the pleasures of this life. We can have them. We can enjoy them in a healthy way. But we don't get obsessed. We don't get demanding. And when things don't go our way, we don't pout. We don't complain. It's, like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. i got eternity to look forward to. Now, you may have never heard that illustration before, but you know that truth. Why is it still so hard for you and for me to actually live that way? I mean, why do we get so bent out of shape about things that we feel like we have to have in this life? Whether it be more money or more sex or more power, more prestige or better reputation, whatever it is, and upset when we don't have it, okay? I think it's at least for two reasons, okay? Part of it is, deep down, we really, listen, I know that we get it intellectually right. We know it in our mind. We know it in our mind is true. We don't feel the reality of it in our hearts enough. Maybe we have moments of it, a great worship service where we're worshiping and we're enjoying the Lord, and it seems like it comes close. We're like, I feel like I'm experiencing heaven right now, and there's joy. But how long does that usually last us? 24 hours at best, a Monday morning, I'm in a terrible mood all over again. Or not a terrible mood, but just a bored mood. Just a mood that's ready to be tempted if I'm not careful. Okay? Two things that I think if we help remember will help us fight this, okay? The first thing is this, okay? Always try to see the hook and the bait. I mean, imagine if you were a fish and there was a very beautiful little minnow that you knew looked very tasty, but you were an old fish, you were a smart fish. You could literally see the hook in that minnow. If you're an old smart fish, you say, I'm not going to eat that minnow. I don't care how tasty that minnow looks because I can see the hook and I know how this thing goes. It's going to get caught in my gills and it's going to rip me to the surface and it's game over for me. We, we've got to learn to be that way with Satan's temptations in this life. Guys, whatever it is that you're coveting, whatever it is that I'm coveting, it's a black hole of neediness. And here's what I mean. And see if this doesn't resonate with your experience. Haven't you had experiences in your life where you wanted something in a sinful way or a sinful thing that you shouldn't want it and you actually got it? And how long did the pleasure and the satisfaction last? About a second. Right? So when you go outside on a cold day and you can see your breath and you try to grab it, before you even touch it, it's already gone. That's like the pleasure in sin. It's fleeting. It's never fulfilling. And it's never enough. Right? How much money is enough? Again, don't worry. Not going to do this one out loud. But probably most of us are in some place where we, we have a, a certain amount of money. Okay? We'll just, let's just say it's $10,000. Know, if I could just make $10,000 more for a year, I think everything would be fine. All my bills be paid. I could be able to say, maybe even do a vacation. That's all I'm asking for, Lord. Just a little bit of a raise. And some of us have probably been in that situation before. And then you get the $10,000. Praise God. Everything's awesome. How many years is it if you even make it a year before you're like, Lord, you remember that conversation we were having about a year ago? Thank you very much for answering my prayer. But I don't know if you heard of this thing called inflation down here, Lord. I, 
I'm going to need another raise. Listen, it's not wrong to want more money. It is wrong to demand more, and it'll never be enough. And here's the last thought, and we're done. Okay. This principle from James 4.10 of, if you humble yourself, you'll get exalted. I mean, just think about that with me for just half a second. Do you really believe that? Because biblically speaking, that's the pattern of the whole universe. Those that are willing to humble themselves, to lower themselves, in the long run, they get exalted. And, and the greatest picture of that, if you ever doubt it, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He was the most exalted being in the universe, in heaven. I mean, he had perfect satisfaction, perfect security, perfect significance. And he intentionally and willingly laid it all aside. He humbled himself to come to earth, not just as a man, but as a poor man. Killed as a criminal, lynched, tortured, suffered the wrath of God. I mean, in some sense, what Jesus did in the cross is he went into the black hole of the wrath of God and he absorbed it all for his people. I mean, he lost all sense of satisfaction, all sense of security, all sense of significance on the cross. And why did he do it? So that one day we could have it all with him. We could be there with him and reign eternally. In some sense, with his blood, sweat, and tears, he was working hard to prepare for us the perfect feast for all eternity. And to the degree the reality that sinks down into our soul, again, not just a mental academic way, but an experiential way where I can say, I taste and see that the Lord is good. When that temptation comes floating across my eyesight, my mind, my heart, whatever it is, I can say, thanks but no thanks. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to demand because I may not get all the joy I want in this life, but it's coming in the next life. And by God's grace, I can wait and be patient. Let me pray for us. Father, Thank you for sending this son. Thank you that you really are a good God. That you really do desire good gifts for us as your children. I pray for myself and I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would at a deeper level, at a more fundamental level, believe the truths that we already believe in our mind. That we would believe them in our hearts. That we would feel the reality of them. That Satan would begin to more and more lose his grip on us because we would quit believing his lies about you, about us, about what the good life really is. Make us into the men and the women of holiness that you want us to be. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. 